Please turn, if you would, again to the book of Colossians, where we've been for several months now, and are reaching the end of chapter 1. We have, uh, for the last 13 years, claimed Colossians 1.28 as our church's mission and purpose, why we exist, what we believe God would have us do. And today, we get to study it, and we get to study it within the context of all that, uh, God has, all that God has put around it. So again, outline that we're trying to follow just for those of you that either easily get lost or perhaps have not been here. We are in this large section that I believe runs into chapter 2, verse 5, um, or verse 7, which is the preeminence of Christ, that's the wording in verse 18, is declared, and it's declared in the gospel message, in the redemption, verses 12 to 14, in creation, verses 15 to 17, in the church where we've been the last two weeks, and now today in Paul's ministry. Now, John MacArthur, that's the uh, outline that we're borrowing and using, ends this point on Paul's ministry at chapter 1, verse 29, the, the chapter break, which Seems very logical, probably more logical than mine. But I'm going to assert that I think it goes through chapter 2, verse 5, and I will give you a couple of reasons in a couple of minutes, but primarily the repeated use of Paul referring to himself, I and me, runs through all 11 of these verses, if you go all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, 17 or so times that he refers to himself, either in the singular or the plural. And secondly, that the first verse, verse 24, opens with rejoicing, Paul rejoicing. And the last verse that I think in this section, verse 5 of chapter 2, ends with also Paul rejoicing. So that will be a part of my uh, argument uh, for how we're doing this. So we're going to put both this whole section, even though it's going to take us two weeks, under one basic broad title, The Struggle, Joy, and Blessing, that I've inserted for Paul, but also equally for us, of proclaiming God's mystery. And Christ is one way that's defined. Christ in us, the hope of glory, is the other way. So we'll tackle the rest of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2 that I think belongs with the end of chapter 1, and that a chapter break maybe would have been better after verse 5, but what it is what it is. But we'll go through verse 1, and then, Lord willing, next week, take those next four or five verses and finish out this theme. You'll need your Bibles here. I don't have a slide for this, but let me just show you some of the overlapping. This is a section that's kind of hard to outline, hard to break down, because Paul seems to weave back and forth between various themes. So I've already said that personal pronouns show up about 17 times in here. God is referred to five times, twice in verse 25, then the his in verse 26, and then again in verse 27, and then one more time into chapter 2 toward the very end of verse 2. Christ either in name or in a pronoun reference, shows up nine times. In verse 24, Christ's afflictions and then also his body. And then at the end of verse 27, Christ in you. And then the first word of verse 28, I think, is about Christ. You could argue that it's also God at the beginning of chapter or verse 27. But I think the end of verse 27 Christ in you is who we are proclaiming. And then the end of verse 28, last word, is Christ. And then he appears again at the very end of verse 2. God's mystery, which is Christ. The pronoun in verse 3, whom. And then the very, very closing bookend of this whole section, the last words of verse 5 of chapter 2. And then also woven throughout here are you pronouns, because Paul's talking to the Colossian church, to the believers, though you'll see also 
that this is intended in chapter 2, verse 1, for the church in Laodicea and probably for some other communities and churches where Paul never made it to see them face to face. And those show up about nine times. And then there are other repeated words, so we know to rejoice. Mystery shows up in verse 26, in the middle or tail end of verse 27, and then once again at the tail end of verse 2 of chapter 2. And then the concept of known or knowledge shows up several times. Just going to tell you some of the other ones. The word, the little title, the riches, shows up twice. Um, so lots of interwoven themes through this, and that's why we want to try and take it in two chunks. I recognize that some of you won't be here next Sunday uh, and miss out on that, and there'll be people here next Sunday that didn't hear this, but hopefully we'll keep it cohesive enough uh, that it will, it will resonate. So let me just read this, and then let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to the saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, stunning seven words, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we study what you did in and for and through the Apostle Paul today, we ask, please show us more of the Christ that he met that day on the Damascus Road that so profoundly impacted him every day for the rest of his life. Increase our own passion for Christ, our passion for the deep riches of the good news, to be more like Paul's. By how we see Christ working through Paul today, would you intensify a passion in us to proclaim and share Christ everywhere? Would you increase a passion for the lost, a passion for the church, and a passion for all believers to reach maturity. And through that, would you increase every one of our senses of being on mission, of being your servant, your minister, your steward, of serving you with our lives as we imitate both Christ and Paul. We ask in your name and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our hope. Amen. So verses 25 to 27, we'll put under a little category of the ministry or the stewardship or the charge of proclaiming the mystery of Christ. And I could even say the hope of glory because that's what's at the end of verse 27. So for the moment, don't normally do this, we're going to bypass on verse 24 and come to it at the end because I see the connection uh, between the struggling at the end of uh, in verse not 29 and the struggle in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. And so we will come back to that. For now, let's start with verse 25. And here's why. The end of verse 23, 
Paul introduces or starts talking about himself for the first time in a long time. He has been focused on the Colossian church. He's been focused on Christ. And at the very end of that, he comes back to say, I became a minister. And that's the exact same phrase that he then opens up verse 25 with. Um, and this is, and then stewardship, according to the stewardship from God. This is all language of Paul being a servant. Uh, so think of minister more in that way. Of being a bond slave. Of being one who manages his master's business, possessions, household, to see that it gets done as his master would want it, to be faithful to carry out his master's wishes and wills and commands. So that's the way Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians 4.1, that you, you should regard us, and I'm going to put forth all of us, should regard each other as servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Harold Sinkbeel wrote a book called Caring for Souls. It's a book for elders on just ministering to people. And in there, he's working on a section where he's addressing pastors thinking too highly of themselves. And yet, there's a point here that I think is good for all of us, applicable. He says this, The church already has a Savior. What she needs now is a Savior's servant, someone to do his bidding and, I like this, bring his gifts. That someone is you. Always remember you're nothing more than an errand boy for Jesus. Though an apostle, and that's the way he identifies himself at the beginning of this letter, extremely important and powerful office, Paul didn't exalt that position over others. That wasn't the only way that he wanted people to think of him or refer to him. He wasn't seeking any of that glory for himself. Instead, he saw what an incredible grace God had shown him, saving him, but also entrusting him to serve. He writes about that to Timothy in his first letter. And rather than seeing the spirit of God saved me so I serve him, as God saved me so that I have this incredible privilege to serve him and represent him and carry out his will. And as we note, or as we saw at the beginning of verse 24, for Paul, that's a joy because he realized what Christ has given for him. So we'll come to this in the close, but just briefly here, let's not think of minister as a vocational clergy, person in ministry, someone on a church staff, somebody in some kind of official capacity, somebody with some kind of degree or certificate or whatever. Let's think of it as what every follower of Christ is called to be. And last week, or the last two weeks, we've talked about Christ's reconciling work in all of the universe as well as in reconciling sinners to himself through his death and his blood on the cross. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul attaches both what Christ has given us and what we are to do as servants. And he says, God through Christ reconciled us to himself. Stunning thought we saw last week in verses 21 to 23 of Colossians 1. And, and gave us, here it is, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are, here's another way of thinking of it, ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So once again, St. Beale here with another thought. You're an errand boy for Jesus, sent to disseminate hope and peace in the most mundane circumstances of life. A fearful, anxious teen, a worried mother, or a harried father will find stability in your ministry. Not in you, but in God himself, who has chosen to do his work through the word he's given you to speak. The wondrous reality is that God himself is present by the means of his word, which we're going to see uh, coming up here. 
to settle anxious hearts and quiet fear. So here is the first, uh, carrying on in verse 25, uh, specific part of what Paul's mission is, to make the word of God fully known. And he's going to clarify that and add on additional description in verses 26 and 27. But here is the idea of unpacking for everybody, revealing, explaining, teaching the Old Testament scriptures in particular, much like Jesus did the day that he rose from the dead with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you remember, again, John 1.1, Jesus is referred to metaphorically as the Word. So in one way we might say that Paul's duty was to make the Word or the Christ of God fully known. Meaning, without that help, men won't naturally see Christ, understand the mystery, he will remain hidden. Now Paul unpacks more what he means by Word of God. It's a mystery. It was hidden for ages, generations, we would say thousands of years in terms of its full understanding. But now, Christ having come and now the apostles commissioned to go out and teach that and explain it, now it's been revealed to the saints. So this is to proclaim truth that has been mysterious, misunderstood, hard to see, going all the way back to David, going further back to Moses, going further back to Abraham, going all the way back to Adam. The full counsel of God, the full picture of God's plan of salvation is now being unveiled to us. And you and I, 2,000 years now down the road, are recipients of that. But here at the beginning, God tasked Paul with this monstrous task of going throughout the Roman Empire to make this mystery revealed and to have people respond by faith and be saved. So that at the end of his ministry, Paul wrote in Acts, or said in Acts 20, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I revealed to you everything that God revealed to me. I didn't keep anything uh, hidden for myself. It's been laid out fully so that all now can know Christianity is not about rituals and rites and secret and mystical things. It takes humans who know the word of God to proclaim and explain the word of God. And it takes God himself, the Holy Spirit, to grant understanding of what otherwise could not be discerned. Verse 27, he keeps on, so like each of these thoughts then leads Paul to another thought. And so now that he referenced the saints and this revealing of the mystery, he's going to unpack that. And the, the stunning reality here is that the saints are going to include the Gentiles getting to take part in the riches of the glory of this ministry. And you'll notice at the end of verse 2 of chapter 2, there's some of this same thought that he longs for people to reach all the riches of full under assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. That's Paul's mission. Now, we can see it unpacked much more in Ephesians. Like in Colossians, there's often short thoughts. You've noticed a lot we've cross-referenced over to Ephesians, and we could do that. Well, we're going to do that. We could do it in chapter 2 for a whole series of verses, but maybe less known is chapter 3, those opening verses. So let's look there, and here's what Paul says there. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, very similar language to Colossians, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then he really spells it out. This mystery is that the Gentiles are stunningly fellow heirs of everything. Members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
the point, the, the ultimate mystery is that the saving work of Christ has not been only for Israel. It's been for the whole world. It's been all for the non-Jews as much as for the Jews. And not only that, salvation would not only be equally uh, open to all people on the face of the earth in all of time, but that those people who would otherwise have no connection and perhaps would even be enemies of each other, despise each other as many Jews and Gentiles did. And the unifying of Christ in you, that's the closing line uh, phrase in verse 27, that unifying factor would unify all people together as one new people. And then we come to, and just hover over briefly, these stunning seven words that are really the most specific explanation of what this mystery is, that it's Christ and it's in you, and that provides a hope of glory. John MacArthur says, of all the mysteries God has revealed in the New Testament, the most profound is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not merely Christ over you, beside you, before you, behind you, though all of those are true. Stunningly, it's Christ in you. There's another important prepositional phrase. Christ in you. And when you look back at verse 21 that we looked at last week, and you look at our condition, how stunning it is. And it's because of what Christ provided at the end of uh, verse 22 that he can now reside in us because he has made us holy and without blame and faultless before the Lord. The point is, Christ lies at the, at the center of this mystery. Christ lies at the center of this glory. Sam Storms puts it this way. Christ is not simply the reason we can hope for glory, but Christ is himself that glory. The glory that makes all suffering and pain and disappointment in this life unworthy of comparison. And let me hit pause there. I put two verses at the bottom of this slide that are what Storms is referring to, that we look at the suffering, but and as hard as an anguish and as, as it is, that compared to the glory, the hope of glory that we have, there can't even be a comparison. And that unworthy of comparison is the person and presence of Jesus Christ himself. He is our glory. Being with him, to know him, to see him, to relish and rejoice in his beauty is the glory for which we hope. And we have a taste of it now, but so much more glory that is coming. Don't have this on a slide, but Mark Jones says this about our hope. Our hope is unlike the world's. The world's hope is often vague, uncertain, and a wish thrust upon the stars. But Christ's hope is solid, certain, future, and it's even cleansing or purifying. And he's referring to 1 John 3, 3, which says, everyone who hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. Later in Colossians, and you can leaf over there, turn over a page. Actually, it might be on the same page you're on now. Chapter 3, verse 4, tells us this. When Christ, who is your life, and he's your life because he's living inside of you, appears, comes back, returns, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the Lord Jesus Christ is going to share the glory that we're hoping for and share it with us. In other words, Christ suffered and died and rose not only to redeem fallen creation from their sin, as we saw earlier in Colossians, and to reconcile them to God, but to enjoy both the Father and the Son in all of their splendor, all of their glory. Here's one more swing at this idea of Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you want to reach glory, if you want to reach glorification, if you want to reach heaven, if you want to reach eternal life, if you want to reach anything of what the Bible talks about out there as our hope, there is only one means by which you can do that. And that is to be in Christ and in his righteousness and for Christ simultaneously 
to be in you, as this verse talks about. And we'll note that we're going to see it the other way around as well. Stunning truth, stunning mystery that has been revealed, and Paul's mission has been to make this known. Verse 28, then, our theme verse as a church, we might title, The Goal of Proclaiming This Mystery of Christ. And now he's actually also explaining back earlier what it means for the Word of God and Christ, the hope, to be made fully known. Here's what it takes. Here's why we're doing it. That we will proclaim him, declare him publicly. He's not a little secret. We're not just happy we've gotten to know him and nobody else really needs to be told about him or it's not that significant. We are to be heralds. We are to be proclaiming him. Paul felt this so strongly that he said in 1 Corinthians 9, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me, and he means by God. Woe to me if I do not preach or proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. If I remain silent, if I withhold it from people. So what does that proclamation look like? He gives us two prongs of that fork. Warning, which means admonishing. Telling people there is bad news, there are consequences, there are things to fear. Truths that men don't want to hear, but must be told. No matter how much they despise the message, the truth, and no matter how much they despise us as messengers. Those are to have no impact. We are to be warning. Not just hellfire and brimstone, Though hell is a very part, real part of what we should warn them. But warning also about sin and that there are severe consequences and that God does not just bypass it, that blood must be shed, that there is a penalty, that it is deceptively blinding. And that would be for non-believers, but also for believers who perhaps need to be warned to turn from their sin or they will perish. Warnings about false teaching. That's where we're ultimately going to go here in chapter 2 of Colossians about either how to be saved or how to be sanctified. Warnings about apostasy, not continuing the faith, as verse 23 talked about last week. Warning people not to turn a deaf ear. Warning them of all that the Bible reveals about that is to be a part of what turns them toward Christ. And a reminder here, from 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that what Satan is working so viciously at is to blind the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the very image of God. So as a result, most people see little or nothing great about Christ. So we warn. And secondly, or thirdly, we teach. And that, we know, is instructing, imparting truth and knowledge. Paul is doing that. He's calling the Colossians to do that as well. In other words, explain both the bad news, but also the answer, the good news, the response, the gift that's available. This is bring out the insight from God about how to bring truth to someone that will with wisdom, impact them. And the idea of wisdom here, you might just connect it down to chapter 2, verse 3, which tells us even that. We need the wisdom of Christ to explain the mystery of Christ. Unpacking that mystery requires God to lead us and guide us and help us. And this is so important that this is what Paul asks for at the end of his letter, just before he goes to the conclusion of greeting people and giving them greetings from people. Here was his last request. So remember how his letter opened with, I pray for you, and here's all the things I pray for. Here now is, would you pray for me, for us? And here's the request. And notice how much proclaiming, warning, teaching, even though those words aren't all in here, all with wisdom are factored in. Pray that God may open to us a door for the word, for Christ, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear of which I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time 
or the opportunity that God gives you. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. And here then is the ultimate goal of why we're proclaiming warning teaching. So that in the end, we may present everyone mature in Christ. So now notice the other side of the coin of our union with Christ. Not only Christ in us, but us in Christ and mature in Christ. Meaning that every believer will be as fully developed as possible to have Christ fully formed in them. To not be, as we saw in verse 23 last week, to not be weak and wobbly, but be steadfast, stable, not shifting, or coming up in chapter 2, verse 7, to be rooted, to be built up in him, to be established in the faith. Those are all ways of thinking about this mature in Christ. Paul's passion is not only to see people saved, though that is a burning passion of his, but it's also for them to go on in Christ and experience as much of Christ as possible. So I'm never real happy with the word pictures I use, but I'll try one here, and it's an inanimate object, so it's very limited. But if Christ were equated to the majestic Rocky Mountains, all of them, one must come to one mount in order to go to any of the others. One must first come to the mountain called Calvary in order to be saved. And there, repent and believe. But Paul's point here is, then don't stay there as beautiful and awesome. You want to always keep that mountain in your sight. But you want to explore every trail of every other mountain in the entire range in order to be fully sanctified. Discovering all the life, the beauty, the majesty, the power of the mountains. One other thing about verse 28. Note everyone, you only see one here, but earlier, warning everyone, teaching everyone, and now everyone mature. All believers are to have a passion for all believers, a vested interest that all of us become all that God has saved us to become. Everyone needs Christ. Everyone needs to know Christ and grow in him and to desire that in all others. And that brings us to our third and final category or theme within this section where we'll start with verses 29 and 1 and then go back to verse 24. And now we might say here's the struggle or the suffering of proclaiming the mystery of Christ. So Paul notes at the beginning of verse 29, first of all, for this I toil, or struggle, and you'll see struggle again in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. This is a word that means working hard, laboring to the point of exhaustion, to pour oneself out in, eff in effort, to do painful, difficult, long work. And he's saying that he's doing that for the Colossian believers. He's doing it for those in the nearby city of Laodicea. He's doing it for all kinds, probably dozens upon dozens upon dozens of church bodies and communities. And the point is, even when I'm not face to face with you, which is by far the easiest way to do ministry and make disciples, but even then I am struggling it doesn't, if you're out of sight, you're not out of mind. You are in my prayers, you are on my heart, and I will do anything and everything I can to see that you mature in Christ. In other words, the stewardship, the ministry that we each are given is rarely something for lazy people, something for pe people who want an easy life, or something for people who prefer being spectators rather than participants. It takes physical endurance, emotional investment, spiritual discipline. It's something that can and often does expend your entire being. In Galatians 4.19, Paul likened this toil to being in the anguish or the deepest, most painful parts 
of childbirth. And I recognize we men have a very limited understanding of that anguish. But it's a picture. He, grabbed, he grasps the pain and all of that, and yet what we're doing for Christ to be formed in other believers. It takes time, sustained effort, prayer, patience, faithfulness, courage, conviction, love, and so much grace. G. Campbell Morgan reminds us here, what is true of the minister is true of every man who bears the name of Christ. We have not begun to touch the great business of salvation when we have sung, rescue the perishing, care for the dying. We have not entered into the business of evangelizing the city or the world until we have put our own lives into the business, our own immediate physical endeavor inspired by spiritual devotion. And you know, what's so beautiful about this passage is that it's not just Paul, him alone. He recognizes and credits immediately, I am toiling and struggling, but it is not ultimately with just me. It's all Christ's energy that he powerfully works within me. Very similarly, over in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, right after talking about the resurrection, in fact, 1 Corinthians 15 is filled almost entirely with the glories of the resurrection. But in there, talking about the power, Paul talks about how hard he's working, harder than anyone else around him, and yet recognizing that wasn't me, that was the grace of God that was working so powerfully in me. Paul's language often is resurrection power, if you think of Philippians 3.9, for example. Peter likes the term divine power. In Ephesians 1.19, a passage we've looked at before, Paul wants the church to know there is a you-can't-measure power, this power. It is so great for all who believe. It's the power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and when he seated him at his right hand. God worked mightily through Paul as Paul worked viciously hard for Christ's sake. One of the ways Christ in us, the ending of verse 27, one of the ways Christ in us most profoundly affects us is the enormous power that it puts in us, both to change us internally and to accomplish the work that the Lord gives us to do. That's always more than we can handle, more than we are able to do. But the thing about this energy and power is... It comes as needed at the time. There is a sense in which we can store up reserves in a limited way, but for the most part, when the righteous are walking by faith, eyes fixed on Christ, Christ's power is rising up in us and flowing out of us into others and into the work that he's given us to do. And now let's circle back, finally, to verse 24 and use this as a concluding thought. While Paul once rejoiced to persecute those who followed Christ, now he rejoices to be persecuted with those who follow Christ. What a transformation Christ has made in this man. When Paul met Christ, he went from being the strongest persecutor of Christians to being the most persecuted of Christians. He went from being the cause of others' suffering to being the one who suffered for the cause of others. And stunningly, he found an enjoyment, an inner thrill that wasn't determined entirely by his circumstances over just seeing the gospel work, seeing the glory and the beauty of it, seeing people saved, seeing people sanctified, to see what normally is thought of by man as a punishment, as an incredible privilege that he could bear for Christ. Over in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives a resume, and that's really what most of this slide is. That's an amazing resume. I'm not going to read all of it. Let me just give you some ways of thinking about this. Categories. There's eight things at the front end that he either numbers or are bigger, broader ways of just talking about prison and beatings and almost dying 
and lashes and rods and stonings and shipwrecks. Then there's about eight things that all have danger associated with them, and I've kind of paired them up. There's just nature dangers, there's human nature dangers, whether it's robbers, his own people, or Gentiles. He's, he's experienced it from all of them. Danger in a city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, basically everywhere he's gone, and even danger from false brothers. And then five things that boil down to just bodily hardship, toil, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, cold exposure. But on top of that, he says, most significantly of all, even more than all that anguish, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You see where this man's heart is? Do you see why he can honestly say, I rejoice in suffering? It is so worth it to see what God is doing in you. And if I have to suffer in order for that to be accomplished, I am willing joyfully to do it. It seems twisted from our normal way of thinking. We Americans especially, all about safety and avoid all risk and all costs. But this is gospel perspective, to so treasure Christ, to so treasure the good news that suffering for it is more than worth it for Paul. Now if he'd have just left that, it would have been strong and clear. And then he adds this phrase that has created all kinds of misunderstandings and misconstruing of things. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So you can see just by reading that, like, whoa, how are we dealing with this? Certainly we know from the reading of all of the New Testament that this is not saying that his suffering for sinners' sin, our penalty, our punishment, was not completed on the cross, that we have to do some sort of suffering to fully fill that out, or that his atonement wasn't sufficient, or that God's work, Christ's work for our salvation in any way is insufficient. Rather, he's meaning any suffering because of the gospel, because of being a Christian, Paul, us, any believer, experienced after Christ is gone from the earth is ultimately aimed at Christ. That's the reason we're suffering and we only now experience it for his sake or on his behalf. So if you think about when Jesus interrupted Saul's life on the road to Damascus as he was headed to persecute Christians, the question Jesus asked him was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? doesn't say the church. doesn't say Christians. It says me. Jesus' question was, why are you persecuting me. This is all about Christ. Uh, so the preeminence of Christ carries out here as well. Sam Storms. The sufferings of Paul and of all Christians are simply the continuation of the world's quarrel or fight or onslaught with the Lord Jesus because of the brevity of his earthly life did not bear the full brunt of the world's hatred and animosity. Thus, we are the objects of it in his place. You might also think perhaps of a play on words, especially with how this verse closes, talking about the body of Christ, referring to it as that, is that Paul's physical body, in, the, in my flesh, he says there, was bearing affliction for Christ's spiritual body, which is the church. Paul's physical body, was bearing affliction for Christ's spiritual body, the church. But what's stunning in all of this is this attitude and this spirit of joy. But we see it throughout the New Testament. Very, very quickly, um, Acts chapter 5. The apostles have been beaten by the religious leaders. And it says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. There's that gospel perspective that's so different from human perspective. Worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Peter speaks of it powerfully, and this is long. 
But chapter 4 of 1 Peter, if you're ever wrestling with suffering, is powerful uh, in what he has to say. Here's some of his thoughts. Opens with, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Skipping all the way down to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised or dismayed or scared or whatever it might be, shocked at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as, and here's another way of thinking of this phrase in Colossians, you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. A few verses later, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let it not cause him in any way to back down, but let him glorify God in that name. And then finally, last verse of chapter 4, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls. Man may be pounding their body, but entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then, of course, the ultimate example, far bigger and better than Paul's, is Christ's own example, as he suffered far worse and yet, at the same time, rejoiced far more. Look at Jesus, the founder, Hebrews 12, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who because of or for the joy that was set before him, because of the joy that he could see that was coming out of his suffering, he endured the cross and all of its agony, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand. Consider him, ponder, think about, meditate on, focus your mind. Let, think about this often, especially when you're suffering. Him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Most of us end up in the weary, faint-hearted. Some of us just in endure the suffering, it's here. But the call of the scripture is rejoice, both in what your Savior has done, but also in what the suffering means for the glory of his name. When you suffer for someone else, whether it's Christ, in this case, for his church, for another believer, an incredible deep bond happens. And when you suffer with someone, namely Christ, a special bond deepens. And all of this at the end of verse 24, for the sake of his body, that is the church. One of the remarkable qualities about Paul is his passion for Christ's body or bride. Flawed as it is, he was so willing to toil, struggle, and even suffer to help Bodies of believers and individual believers grow in Christ in any way possible. Very quickly, concluding thoughts far faster than perhaps you can even write them, but they'll show up in an email or you can email me for them. We go a lot of ways with trying to reflect on this. I thought about Paul's remarkable attitude, his purposefulness, his effort, his reliance. But for sake of simplicity, and because four is too few, we've got five, all starting with S, Hopefully helpful in memory work in some way. First of all, suffering. Not just being willing to suffer, though I hope our hearts are there. I hope my heart is there fully. But being able to rejoice because you're joining your Savior in that suffering. Just familiar words, but good reminder here from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The closing blessings of the Beatitudes are... Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a reward. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, there it is again, and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, and because they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Compared to many other Christians in the world now and throughout the last 2,000 years, God hasn't called us to suffer very much for the sake of his name. We suffer under the curse in lots of other ways, but for the sake of Christ, 
but it seems our time and our turn is approaching. And should it come, may God help us in whatever suffering we may face to not only endure it, keeping the faith, but rejoice in Christ. Secondly, second S word, stewardship or servant. A concept not just for Paul or for the apostles, but for every Christ follower. Again, 1 Corinthians 4, this is how others should see us. This would be a compliment if somebody would recognize you as a servant of Christ, as a steward of the mysteries of God. And then the reminder in verse 2, it's required of stewards and required by God. And the passage goes on to talk about being judged by God and the accountability that we will have for our servanthood and our stewardship. Third, S, and it's actually a double one, struggling but strong or strong struggle. Serving Christ is exhausting toil and yet it is empowered work and it is rewarded work. So 1 Corinthians 15 at the end of the resurrection chapter, be steadfast in light of the power of Christ being raised from the dead, always abounding, always energized by him in the work of the Lord, knowing that none of it will ever be in vain or wasted or unnoticed. Fourth, sanctification. Every believer should want every believer to become complete in Christ. We certainly can become myopic and focused on our own spiritual growth, important as that is, but Paul's heart and our heart should be for everyone to reach maturity in Christ. None that are struggling, stagnant, stuck, weak, shrinking, drawing back, apostatizing, but wanting and working toward all of us, growing ever stronger, ever more energized by the Lord, even though bodily, emotionally, and in every other way, we may be exhausted. And finally, share Christ with others. Keep God's mission and purpose and his will and his plan for all that he saves to have the mystery of his glorious son revealed to everyone possible that they may have the opportunity. As Paul says in Romans 1, never being ashamed of the gospel, never backing down, never being afraid of the suffering it may bring if we proclaim it because it's the power of God for salvation to both Jews and to Greeks. George Whitfield. Other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no one can preach a better gospel than the one that has been given to us. And then I just put Paul's prayer at the end of Colossians back up as a great reminder in our sharing. Pray for open doors. Pray for words. Pray for walking in wisdom so that our actions don't diminish the testimony. And pray when we get those little conversations how you ought to answer each person and proclaim the mysteries, the things that people are blind to in order to build them up. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage woven with Paul's testimony and life and yet saturated with the precious and beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. How we thank you for the privilege and the joy of Suffering, struggling, toiling, and yet the joy of revealing that. So make us more bold and compassionate proclaimers, warners, teachers, so that all might become more complete in you. We pray in your name and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.